We continue with the Department of Veterans Affairs 75 Days 75 Stories project, honouring the memory of Aussie men and women of World War II. On this, the 75th anniversary year of the end of World War II. Let's start there. Australia remembers Maureen Devereaux, whose brother, John Barnier, ended up as a prisoner of war of the Japanese on the ill-fated Sandakan Death March. Despite her being quite young, she remembered the last time she saw John and the feeling of extreme unease that came over her. I often think of the last time I saw John. Perhaps I didn't see it very clearly because it was as if I was looking through a waterfall of tears. It was at South Crafton Railway Station. His final leave had finished and he was going back to Sydney to join the Queen Mary, of course, to sail out overseas. And at the station were just our little family group. At one stage, just before the train pulled out, I had this terrible feeling sort of went right around my heart that I knew I was never going to see him again. And we'd kissed goodbye. And then the train pulled out, chugged out of the station. And, well, John was leaning far out of the window, waving his army hat until finally... The train just curved around and he had gone. On the 75th anniversary of the end of the Second World War, Australia remembers Sir John Carrick, who served his country first in uniform and then in federal parliament. He was taken POW by the Japanese, where he spent three and a half years, including time on the infamous Hellfire Pass section of the Burma-Thailand Railroad. At times, his biggest fight was with his own demons. When you're in Timor and you're only a few hundred miles away from your own mainland and you suddenly realise that you've failed, that all of you have failed, uh, that the enemy is getting to your mainland, you are being surrendered. It's a tremendous emotional thing for everybody. Sense of shame? i failed. What are my people going to think? We've failed altogether to do it. Are they going to attack my country? Are they going to invade my country? And then they tell me I mustn't attempt to escape because it'll have an effect on those who are around me. I've got to stay with my troops and look after them. Everything foreign to what any soldier has ever known. So the adjustment period early on is very, very difficult. Australia remembers Ray Wheeler, a prisoner of war of the Japanese, for three and a half years. With POWs often listed as missing in action, many families thought their loved ones didn't survive. Ray's family was no different. See, I'd been reported missing, presumed dead before Singapore fell. That was my status for nearly three years. The records came home from Changi and Singapore. Our names weren't in those that had survived. So I stayed on that as missing, presumed dead. The first inkling I had, they thought I might have been still alive, was I got a letter that was 18 months old from Mum and she'd stated she'd written it in the hope that I was still alive and that had me puzzled why she'd think I shouldn't be alive. And when I came home, I found out that she didn't know. Uh, to them, I was dead for those three years. Then she got a card that I'd written in Burma which was perhaps the same length of time old, and uh, said, oh, he's, he is alive, but it was dated that long ago, they were worried. And the next thing she said, it was only about two weeks later, a telegram boy arrived, and this news was to say that I was with the Americans in Saipan and on my way home. 
Australia remembers Brian Higginbotham, who served with the little-known North Australia Observer Unit. Otherwise known as the Nakaroos, their job was to keep surveillance across the north of Australia, where Japanese infiltration may occur, especially the top end. And that's where Brian and the Nakaroos received some unexpected but vital help. Without the Australian Aborigines, our unit would have not lived. When the wet, wet season was on, nothing got out there. Made a mine. He was saved by a man called Joshua of Arapa River Aborigine and dysentery. He got leaves, boiled them up and made him drink it. Um, they got Nicky Nicky, which is plug tobacco. Um, they got some food from the army, but they did live off, mostly off the land themselves. The unit had to cross rivers where there was a lot of crocs. The Aboriginal guys just told them not to cross there. They could see the, the bubbles where the average man would not see them. Some horses were taken, but no man was ever taken or even attacked. Australia remembers Don Sandy McNabb, a ship's writer and survivor of the HMAS Perth, which was sunk off Java by Japanese torpedoes. He was then taken POW, where eventually his writing skills saw him selected by his captors for a most unusual assignment. I was taken up to the Grand Hotel at Garut, and they supplied us with billiards, beautiful food, plenty of beer, steaks. It turned out they were making a propaganda film to drop on Australia, to tell Australians how well they would be looked after when the Japanese took over Australia. They singled me out. They put me in a, an AIF soldier's hat, an Air Force shirt, at a table with a pen and paper and said, we want you to write a letter to your wife in Australia. I don't have a wife. Well, write to your girlfriend. And it's the craziest thing because it's... Uh, telling the Australian people how I'm missing the kangaroos, the cockies, Bondi Beach. Once they were losing that sea war, their propaganda was of no use to them. So it was never shown. Australia remembers the atomic bomb dropped on the Japanese city of Nagasaki on the 9th of August, 1945. Paul Couvray was working in the shipyards some eight kilometres from the centre of the blast. It destroyed the city and helped hasten the end of the war. The first thing we saw was the bright flashes as somebody fired a flash cube near you. Then a few seconds later, the blast came, which caused an avalanche of debris. And then we saw this incredible pillar of fire and smoke billowing into the sky. And we were wondering what on earth had happened. We thought it was because of uh, an incendiary bomb setting off a underground ammunition dump which set up a chain reaction and blew the whole city sky high. Later on, we heard from the boys who had been working in the open when the bomb went off that they actually saw three parachutes coming down. Our theory was that it might have been an intermediary coming down to discuss peace with us, but we had no idea that a bomb had gone off and destroyed the whole of the city in one blast. Australia remembers the D-Day landings on June the 6th, 1944, the largest amphibious invasion in history. Dean Murray was in charge of a flotilla of landing craft. What he saw that day was forever etched into his memory. The sea was rough. There were ships everywhere. It was simply crowded. It just covered the whole sea. It was quite tremendous. We were part of a long line of landing craft heading for the beach. We had air cover, we had destroyers just astern of us bombarding the beach. 
and we had what were called landing craft rockets that were fired about a mile off the beach and landed on the beach and cleared a swathe for the soldiers to run up, clear of landmines and anything else. That actual landing did not suffer any uh, fire from the shore at all, I think mainly because of the air raids and bombardments that had gone on all through the night. It involved millions of personnel, tens of thousands of ships. I feel quite proud to have been part of it, actually. August marks the 75th anniversary of the end of the Second World War. Let's pay our respects to that amazing generation of Australians. We'll bring you more of DVA's 75 Days, 75 Stories project in the coming weeks.